Well, good morning, church. Pardon me, having a wardrobe malfunction up here. Man, excited to be here uh, with you, excited to get to, to teach a little bit out of Acts uh, chapter seven, 17. Whenever uh, Steve uh, asked me to come, he asked me to do a few things. I've been tasked with a few things. One is to share my story. Uh, two is to chat with you, just to preach through. Uh, he didn't give me a text, but it just said talk about church planning, and I was like, I know the perfect text, Acts chapter 17. So I'm going to teach on that, and then I'm going to just share a little bit about uh, heights on the back end. And the, the point of me sharing about heights is not to boast in heights. Um, our only boast is Christ, but just to remind you that as we see victory uh, just eight miles south of you, uh, you guys sharing that victory with us. Uh, the only reason that we get to do what we get to do is because you and your generosity. As I said in the first service, like, generosity is not a sermon series for Trailhead. It's an identity. Um, that, that We are generous as a church in heights because of what I got to experience here. And so it's just incredible for me to be here. It's nostalgic. It's weird, if I'm being honest with you. It's a little weird to be here. Uh, it's been four years, you know, and so just been busy, then hit with COVID, and just haven't been here. Last time I was here, I was when my mom passed away, and I, I was supposed to preach, and I didn't get to because of that, and I ended up coming, and, and Pastor Steve, I just call him Steve, uh, gave me space to process, and so I was doing a ton of research on the doctrine of adoption during that time, and maybe if you were here, you might recall, but I came and just preached on the doctrine of adoption more for me uh, even than for the church that was here. And so, um, so I love this place. I don't get to come here often, but I do see Steve all the time. We talk regularly, and he still uh, is terrible at answering text messages. It's not just you. It's him, okay? He's bad at that. And so uh, I'm pumped to be here. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a big idea. I'm going to give you a, few, a couple points, and then I'm going to knock out. I'll start with a story. Sound good? I am eight miles south, so we like to think we're like Southern Baptist down there, okay? It's only eight miles, but when I say, like, sounds good, you can say, hey, John, help me out. Sounds good. There you go. If I say, say amen, you can say, there you go. Yeah, just like that. Amen. And so um, you can drink more coffee. It's probably for you in the lobby, okay, if you need to wake up. Uh, big idea. Let me start with that. Church planting is necessary to sustain life within the church. Church planting is necessary to sustain life within the church. We'll unpack that. Three uh, simple points for you that are coming after my story. So church planning creates new opportunities for you uh, as individuals, creates opportunity for you as a church as a whole, uh, but most certainly creates new opportunities for the individual that exists within uh, Trailhead and every other church. Uh, opportunities for the gospel to actually be able to, to be spread, to be shared, to take up root in the life of different cultures and different people. Opportunities for the gospel. And then lastly, I just want to see how they would put this on the screen to mess with your tech team. Opportunities to straight turn the world uh, upside down, man, as we heard in Acts, 7, Acts chapter 17. These men who turn the world upside down. Like we're not just planting churches. Uh, man, we are bringing glory to the Father in very radical ways. And so I'm excited to get into it. Let me start with just my story and how I came uh, to Trailhead. It took about eight to ten minutes, okay? So just buckle up. Uh, first off, I wasn't raised in the church at all. Uh, I was raised by drug addicts. And so if you're like, man, that dude's a little crazy and weird, that's why, okay? It's not my, I didn't ask for that. It's just what I was brought up in. Uh, I was raised also in a, a biracial family. And so I was a small town in Metropolis of Illinois, about 7,200 people. I was one of probably two biracial families that existed in that uh, community. I had four different stepdads or five by the time I was in fourth grade. The man who stuck around was an African-American man that was also into drugs. And so he wasn't really present. Um, but he had a big impact on me in my life, the way I view the world and culture around me. Uh, my biological dad passed away when I was seven uh, from a cocaine overdose in a hotel room with a woman who was not my mom. Uh, my mom just passed away, as I mentioned, uh, just five years ago, I believe, still with narcotics in her system. Man, treated her body 
like a fun park, and it caught up with her. So in fifth grade, I started following their footsteps. I had, um, from fifth grade to freshman year of high school, I had done everything and tried everything illegal that you could imagine. Uh, fortunately, I just, I didn't get caught, or unfortunately, maybe I should have, in hindsight, uh, got caught. Maybe that would have helped. Uh, but by my freshman year of high school, I had school there. So I came to Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, where the E is for excellence, they said. Um, wreaked havoc on that campus for a solid five years, like a good senior would do, you know, and, um, and then uh, came to faith. And so I, I met my wife who was here last service. Her name's Andrea. We have three kids, two biological kids, uh, one foster adoptive kiddo, and uh, met her. I came to faith in her bed. She was a Christian, I was not, so I like to think she was in sin. I was just born into sin. And so she was willfully disobedient, right? And uh, the classic, you know, it's just a classic bad boy, good girl mantra, you know, that every dad fears. There's hope. <laughs> There's hope for you dads in Christ. And um, in only Christ, not in some dude. And so came to faith in her bed, man. I woke up one morning, and uh, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just knew Jesus was better. That's all I had. And so I roll over, I look at her, and I say, hey, I think God just called me to be a youth pastor. And she looks at me, and she says, uh, you need to change some things about yourself, Corey. Said, yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, I was like, yeah. And she goes, what are you going to do? And I said, man, I'm going to do it. Uh, four months later, I had lost all the people that would say that they were my friend, uh, with the exception of three, my wife, um, Jeff Nail, who planted Heights Church with me, and a woman named Heather, who would later be my pastoral assistant for many years. We were only seven years old, but for about five years, uh, she did that. Everyone else left me. Within eight months, I was enrolled in something that was called seminary. I didn't even know that was a word that existed. Someone's like, you need to go to seminary. I'm like, Sim what? Cemetery? Seminary? Like, are you saying Pam? Or, you know, like, I didn't know what they were referring to. I had to research it, and it turns out, and if you're like me, and you also are maybe new to the faith, and you don't know a bunch of Christianese, that's okay. You're actually healthier that way. Uh, seminary just means grad school for Jesus. They could have just said that. They didn't say that. And so I went to grad school, Covenant Seminary, which is where Brian Pacheco went. Turns out, one of the top three reformed seminaries in the United States. I had no clue, um, but I got to go there. I got an incredible wealth of knowledge and theological training while I was there, and I became a youth pastor. Uh, as the Lord had called me to do. For three and a half years, I served as a youth pastor. I didn't show this in the first service, but I'll share it here. It was the most lonely and alienating time of my life, and I've already mentioned my childhood. Uh, it was, I found the most lonely and alienating time in my life in the church, uh, more so than in my dysfunctional family. So three and a half years, I was there, and I thought... Um, I know nothing about that, so I just figured as I matured, then my ministry would mature, and I would kind of at that point be a lead pastor somewhere. Well, it turns out God does not always use the mature, but as we're going to say, he uses some misfits for sure, and I was one of them. And so I started researching church planting. I'm looking, I'm emailing everyone in the area that is into that thing, and a network called Acts 29. I get all involved. I'm trying to figure out what do I do next. Every single pastor that I emailed said, you got to go talk to Steve Mizell. Every one of them. You got to go talk to Steve. He's in Edwardsville. He's right there. You got to go talk to Steve. You got to go talk to Steve. And I was like, oh, great. Okay, I'll go talk to Steve. Lo and behold, <laughs> the Lord knew uh, I needed a misfit to guide a misfit, you know? It takes one to know one. And so the Lord put me with this Californian native skater, super rough around the edges, right? Perfectly suited for me. I mean, that dude 
Mizell was completely, per- God just knew exactly what I needed. And so I show up in his office. I'm all excited, right? I'm like talking about my story and God's calling on my life and I'm pumped to be there. And I'm like, this is what God's doing. We talk for two hours, not eight minutes. And Steve is overly apprehensive as he should be. And he just goes, okay. And I'm like, what? Do you not hear what I'm saying? He's like, okay, I'll, I'll get in touch. I'll be in touch. I'm like, oh, okay, that did not go well. So I leave. Two weeks goes by. I can't shake the conversation. I can't shake the calling that God's given me. And so I don't know how well you know your pastor or not. Um, you don't usually just pop in on him and say, thus saith the Lord. But I did. <laughs> and I, I was like, hey, I'm going to pop in on your office. And I sat down with him. And I was like, hey, man, I've been praying about this. The Lord's calling me to plant a church. He wants you to coach me. In hindsight, that's pretty bold. That's a bold move for, Steve, for me to do to Steve Mizell. And all he did was respond. And he just said, you know, I've been praying about it too, and I think you're right. I think I'm going to coach you. And I was like, cool, what do I do? He said, "Uh, quit your job, raise $100,000, and come spend a year with me. And I was like, bet, I'll do that. My wife was pregnant. (laughs) We're in the middle of buying a house, which I don't even think is legal. I don't even think you're allowed to quit your job while you're buying a house, but I did it anyway to the glory of the Father, okay? Quit my job. Andrea's pregnant. We're in the middle of buying a house. I start fundraising. I show up here, and Steve makes me just sit. Technically, time out. Showed up at the old U.S. Bank. Anybody here at the old U.S. Bank days? Anybody? Just a couple of you? Okay, good to know. So show up at the old U.S. Bank, and Steve makes me sit down for 21 weeks. He just made me sit there. He said something about, like, needing to be in the presence of Jesus, removing an identity of leadership, needing my family to be loved on. I think he just didn't know what to do with me, if I'm honest. He was like, this dude just quit his job, started asking people for money, and his wife's knocked up. Like, what do I do with this dude? First church playing resident, as Pastor Aaron said. And, and he did. He just loved on me. 21 weeks, and I just sat there. No offense to Brian Pacheco, who's not here anyway. Um, man, I hated the music. It was just terrible. I thought it was the worst thing in the world. I hated liturgy, did not understand. And Brian's Birkenstocks. I was like, come on, bro, Birkenstocks are so 80s. He's going to fit in great in Arizona, by the way. And, and what it, hindsight's 2020, right? And so what I realized this week, really, as I've reflected on that, is just how hurt I was by church leadership, um, by how hurt I was by the church, and Steve saw that in me. And so he just made me sit down. 21 weeks, I just sat there. I'm eager to plant. I want to get, get going. And, and the reality is, though, like, I was angry and defensive, and I was frustrated, and I had a wealth of theological knowledge just kind of bubbling up in me. It's like I had the biggest toolbox, but I didn't know how to work on the car. You know what I mean? And he saw, like, all of that, and he also knew that I, like, how acquainted with hurt I was. And so he just pastored me for 21 weeks. I had an incredible amount of drive. The first church I ever went to, I worked at, and I had no discipleship. Uh, Steve Mizell was and is, he's the closest thing to a father I have, father figure in my life. While I'm not here, I'm with him and talking with him pretty regularly. And so I was good to spend a ton of time with him. And the beauty of that was, man, I was defensive. I was visionary that was also like willing to listen and have someone speak into it and so I was kind of this array this mess I was just kind of a mess and Mizell I'm going to give credit where credit's due Steve Mizell in concert with God's word empowered by the Holy Spirit I feel like I have to say all of that to say what I'm about to say Mizell in concert with the word 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, man, took just everything that I was. Like he took all the anger and all the frustration and all the passion and all the drive and all the vision that God had given me, man, and he just kind of molded it. I said in the first service, like he took all that, he molded it, he wrapped the gospel around it, and I thought he was going to like dad me in that moment, and he didn't. You know what he did? He threw me at the gates of hell, and we've been blowing holes in it ever since. Amen? Like it's an incredible reality and opportunity that I've got to set in where he just knew, like that dude just knew how I needed to be talked to and how I needed to be loved. And he took me, and I'm a lot. I only have two people in here from Heights this service. Last service, the front row was full. And I'm a lot to deal with. And he just knew how to take that and mold it. And man, we've been making Satan mad every day since, just punching him in the mouth. You with me? You're not with me? You better talk a little louder with those masks on, church. Okay? Dude, that's what we see in Acts chapter 17 as well. That God takes misfits, takes God's, his people that make no sense, his people, and he takes his gospel, which makes no sense, and he puts those two things together, and he straight just flips the world on its head so that he's the only one that gets the glory, so that I don't get to say, hey, I came in, I had it all figured out, I crushed that residency, and I planted the mess out of that church. I'm like, no, I came in here a mess, and by God's grace alone, I was formed into this weapon of mass destruction for Satan. And then I blasted out of here, and we've been doing it ever since, to the glory of the Father forever and ever and ever. Nothing that I have done. And so there's these three points. The first one is this. Church planning creates new opportunities for you, just like it did for me. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. If you're ready, loudly say, ready. Here we go. Now when they, somebody say they. There we go. They had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Fun words, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Who are they? If you've ever read the book of Acts, what you'll see in there is there are a lot of new people and a lot of new names that come. Almost every chapter, there's someone new being introduced to the mission of God. So right here, we have Paul on his second missionary journey. And so they is Paul's crew that's about to start the church in Thessalonica. This is the birth of the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17. If you were to peel back a page to Acts chapter 16, there's a few other names that kind of come up here. Let me introduce you to them. First off, there's a guy named Timothy. Maybe you've heard of Timothy. He's just a kid in this. He's just a kid. There's a woman named Lydia who comes to faith during a prayer meeting. Like this chick thinks she's a Christian, turns out not comes to faith during the prayer meeting. Then there's a demon-possessed girl that comes in to their squad, and then they all go to jail. And what happens? The jailer comes to faith. Right? That is what a launch team looks like. Okay? If you want to know, that's it. That's how you start ministries. Right? You got the kids' ministry in Timothy. You got a security guard right there, that jailer that came to faith. You got this hospitality. This woman didn't even know she was a Christian. That's who you want in hospitality, okay? Because they're normal and they're not weird like some Christians are. That's who you want to lead your teams. And so whenever the text says they, whenever they had come, this messy little team, they enter into the synagogue. But before we get there, here's the deal. Church planning then, just right here in the text, right? Church planning allows you to identify leaders that otherwise would not be identified. It puts you in a position to be perceptive and see those who are in front of you that you might naturally overlook because of their story or their lifestyle. It creates this beautiful opportunity. So Gary Rohrmeyer, they have this quote for me. Gary Rohrmeyer is a good friend of Steve's, and he's also one of the predominant leaders in a network called Converge that will help Brian Pacheco and his team plant a church in Arizona. He says this. this is so helpful. 
He says, effective leaders are good spotters. I love that. Effective leaders are good spotters. They're on the lookout for potential leaders. They have the ability to look beyond others' deficiencies to see their possibilities. And whenever Steve looked at me, he saw something in me that I didn't see for seven years. He saw, (laughs) to say deficiency, I feel like is wildly understated, but he saw an incredible amount of deficiency. But in in, in the midst of that, for every deficiency, that man plucked out a possibility and just continue to pluck them out of me for these, even for now, even now, right now, in this moment. And so that is exactly like what the Lord does. That's what planting allows us to do, to, to see and recognize deficiencies. We don't downplay someone's hurt or their story. And at the same time, within that deficiency, an incredible amount of possibilities. Think about the disciples. I don't know if you know how much you know about the Bible, but the disciples were a mess. They were all jacked up, weren't they? Half of them were just fishermen. You know what fishermen do at that time? They stood on the bank of the lake of Capernaum, scratching their bellies, drinking wine. You know anyone from Highland? They're basically from Highland, right? Like, it's the same thing. And then you have these two brothers, James and John. What were they known as? Somebody help me out. What were James and John known as? The Sons of Thunder. First off, incredible title. Secondly, they ain't downstairs and trail-haired kids, right? They got a motorcycle cut on and a hog sitting outside. Like, that's a whole... There's some, they're your security team, aren't they? That's who you want running security for kids downstairs. Think about Peter, the apostle Peter. Loudmouth, know-it-all, over-presumptuous Peter, if you get to know him in the scriptures. Whenever they come to get Jesus, what does he do? He cuts a guard's ear off. I said this in a sermon once before. I'm going to say it again here. Here's the deal. If you're, when something pops off in your life and your go-to is to grab a knife, that ain't your first time. That dude's seen time. You know what I'm saying? Three hots and a cot. Or three cot. Yeah, (laughs) three hots and a cot. This is what happens when I don't get enough sleep. So you have this crazy bunch of misfits. Think about the disciples, though. Incredible amount of deficiencies, okay? Endless possibilities. Look at what happened. Birth of the church. Incredible what happened. Think about this. Many of you in this room right now, many of you would not serve in the position you're in had trail had not been planted. Might not even be going to church, right? And not that, and maybe you tried to fit in somewhere else, couldn't figure it out, and yet this church is planted called Trailhead, and yet you get to, and now you get to step into and lead in this role. Church planting is beautiful because it creates space. You guys created space for me to be able to come and figure out what is the vision, what is the direction, what's God doing, created space for 21 weeks for me just to sit there and be quiet, listen to the gospel. Church planning allows us then to continue creating space for those who have been leading maybe behind the scenes and have gone unrecognized to kind of pull them out into the light for a season and recognize them. A church planning creates space for whenever we send people out and you're sending away like eight families or something to go to Arizona. That's insane, by the way, if you don't know that. That's crazy. It creates space for new leaders then to step up and to step in and new volunteers to step up and step in. It creates space for the people that are leaving, right? Like you might miss a Sunday and kind of miss Brian. Whenever Brian gets planted somewhere else across the country, in three months you're going to really miss And within that team, it creates all these different avenues. It is the primary way that God is sustaining life within the church. It kills stagnancy. And creates opportunity for people to continue to step up and step in. And it's exciting. Like, you have no idea who the next generation of leaders are going to be in your church. You have no clue who the next people are going to be that are standing up here. 
Right? Different people thrive under different leadership. You have no clue what it's going to look like. Right? It shakes the church up a little bit. You tracking with me? Like, we had no idea. You guys sent 14 people with us. I didn't know what I was going to get. It was like opening up a box of Pokemon cards. I had no clue what was going to happen. Band of Misfits is what you all sent me, okay? It was fun, and it was exciting, and it was hard, and it was rough, and it was awesome. In that, let me encourage you. Part of that, that, that shaking up, I mean, that's why churches grow by 30% when they plant churches, on average, in America. 30%, because it keeps it fresh and exciting. And here, let me encourage you in this. Let me just pastor you for a moment. Multiplication is really hard. And you're going to lose relationships, and it's going to be tough. But as Mizell used to tell me, and maybe he still says this, healthy things grow. But pruning hurts. And so you're healthy, and you're going to grow. And at the same time, it's going to hurt a little bit. Those relationships are going to sting. And, at, and within that, church planting is still necessary to sustain the life of the church. Let me share a story with you. Can I share another story while I got your attention here? Uh, something happened this week. I want to explain to you, but I got to back up five years to get there, okay? Just bear with me for a couple minutes. Uh, five years ago, we started uh, walking with a family that was living in, in just willful, habitual sin. I got their permission to share this as directly as I'm about to share it. Uh, they were living underneath and kind of behind the facade uh, of this big, beautiful home and lucrative job. And the wife uh, comes into to our church, what we call missional communities, kind of like small groups, but a little different. So she comes in to our MC, and she asked me if she can grab coffee with me. I'm like, sure, I'd love to grab coffee. That's what pastors do. We just drink coffee and write sermons, you know. And so I go meet with her. She comes to me to complain, with me, complain to me about who I thought was her husband being a functioning, somewhat functioning alcoholic. In the midst of that conversation, I find out they're not married at all. They're just living together for the last 10 years. Older couple, kind of living the dream life behind the facade of everything that is pretty in America. So the Holy Spirit, this had to be the Holy Spirit, man. The Holy Spirit just pressed on me hard. You got to call this lady. You just got to call it what it is. I said, okay. And so I said to her, and this is a bold statement. I said, how are you going to meet with me calling out his unrighteousness when you're the only professing Christian in the, re Christian in the relationship? leading him in unrighteousness. You've been living with this dude for 10 years. He's not even a Christian, and you're a proclaiming Christian. That's pretty bold to say to someone you don't know, okay? If we had a good relationship, maybe, right? That was hard. Here's what she said to me. It was nice talking to you. <laughs> Got up, leave Starbucks, just like that. Boom. I thought, I'm never going to see that chick again. Two weeks later, she shoots me a text message, and it says uh, verbatim, it says this, I've been thinking about what you said. Or can we get coffee? I've been thinking about what you said. I'm going to leave him, because I told her, leave that dude. I was like, oh, dear Lord. First off, I was like, thank you, Jesus. Someone actually listened when I told him to leave their dirtbag boyfriend. Yes. Secondly, I was like, oh, dear, here we go, okay? Yeah, we'll grab coffee. So we grab coffee. I go, I meet with her. She tells me what she's going to do. She leaves this dude. I mean, big, the comment was, I can't imagine leaving my $30,000 bamboo floors. That's the type of lifestyle that they're living, right? I thought, well, those floors ain't going to get you into heaven, girlfriend. So she leaves him. She moves into a very small apartment in Collinsville, a few blocks from my house, to be closer to our, as we call them, missional community. Uh, within 24 hours of her moving out, her live-in boyfriend that we all thought she was married to uh, gets a DUI in the company car, loses his job. 24 hours. Goes to jail. She has to go bail him out of jail. I thought, oh, this is what rock bottom looks like. Okay, I've seen this now in my young ministry. 
A couple weeks later, he shows up to our missional community. I think, I'm going to have to fight this dude because he comes in. He doesn't say a word to anyone, doesn't talk to anyone, doesn't make eye contact, just plops down on the couch. He's older than me, so I think naturally he's going to win. He's got old man strength. But there's a And so I'm sitting on the fireplace. I'm looking at him. We all eat. We hang out. It's loud. It's crazy. I don't know what your small groups look like. It feels like Thanksgiving every week. And so it's loud. It's crazy. And then before we're about to open up to talk about Jesus, he says this. He says, I'm a liar. And I've been an alcoholic for 25 years. And I want to give my life to Jesus. And I want to win back my woman. And I believe that dude when he said it too, man. Yes, praise the Lord, amen. And then he did it. Like they totally were separated. He sold his house, moved to Collinsville. In his words, not mine, started courting her, started taking her on dates, asked her to marry him on our stage at our church. He was like, I cannot picture getting engaged in front of anyone else in my church family. I'm like, gosh, this is crazy. So gets, married, gets engaged on our stage, gets married in my office. Just, he's like, we already did all that. We don't need to do all that. Boom. We did that once before. He gets married in my church, a little bitty church office that I have. I share all that because this, three years ago, that family, and they live in Collinsville, started putting out Memorial Day flags in all their neighbor's yards, all the way around their neighborhood, which is a big neighborhood. Um, that turned into them doing block parties, which our city was not fond of at the time. Three years, though, they've been doing these flags, they've been doing these annual block parties, and then just this week, check this out, just this week, our city hosted uh, a big event called C3. They brought that family up on stage and gave them the Good Neighbor Award, which is the first time that award has ever been given. And so what do they do? They get this award, and what do they say? I mean, they just shared the gospel. They were like, we just serve our neighbors because Jesus has served us. Glory to God. That was literally it. It's incredible. So what's the point of that whole story? I think you kind of get the point, right? Church planning creates these new opportunities for us to look at people that the world might look at and say, deficient. But man, but when we look at the gospel, we see endless possibilities, right? And so God creates new opportunities through church planning to allow people to step up and step into different roles within the volunteers, within the leadership. Had you all, had Trailhead not sent me out to Plant Heights Church seven years ago, like that family might, may or may not have come to faith. I mean, I believe in God's sovereignty. Don't get me twisted. But just think about, like, what has happened there? That's just one family. We have 13 missional communities and 20 families in each one of them. That's just one of the many. Isn't that cool? I thought that was so fun. Hope you think that's fun too. First point, church planning creates new opportunities for you. Second point, church planning creates new opportunities for the gospel. This one's going to hit a little harder. Verse 2. And Paul went in, verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. Who's them? Somebody say them. From the scriptures, we got to figure that out. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead. Amen. And saying... This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Amen and amen. So Paul goes into the synagogue to reason with them. Well, who is them? Them is, them are the religious. That's who he's talking to, right? And so it's interesting to me that whenever Paul comes on the scene in his second missionary journey, he goes to his own people. And so he goes to the synagogue. You could say, Paul goes to church. If Paul came to America right now, where do you think he would go? He'd probably start with the church, wouldn't he? 
So he enters into the synagogue. And as if that were not enough, what Paul does is he reasons from the scriptures. It says for three Sabbaths, that's three weeks, Paul sat there in the synagogue reasoning from the scriptures. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, the sons of thunder had not yet written James and John. Like all that Paul would have had would have been the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is what that's called, the law, the Torah. He would have had Isaiah. He would have had maybe the Psalms. But what Paul is doing for three weeks is he's bringing the Old Testament to bear, and he's talking about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as seen in the Old Testament. All roads are leading to the cross. And he would have just been there talking about prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy, explaining how Jesus is the better Adam, and Jesus is the better Noah, Jesus is the better Abraham. Heaven forbid, it would have blown their minds. Jesus is the better King David. They would have been like, what? Right? And so, of course, they respond the way they do in a moment. I was at a church one time, and uh, I had a guy come up to me, and he said, "Uh, I'm a New Testament Christian. Are you a New Testament Christian? I said, what? (laughs) I knew he had, you know, he had some game, some angle there he's trying to play. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I'm a New Testament Christian. I was like, sure, I'm a New Testament Christian. He goes, I don't believe in the Old Testament. I said, I'm not that. Not that, nope. He was on his way to teach Sunday school with that church, by the way. Do you know there are 474 references in the New Testament to the Old Testament? 474, you think that was by accident? What did Jesus preach out of? So, so, so one is better than Jesus when it comes to their preaching and teaching? Think about that. For someone that's, people still say that nonsense. Jesus spoke, preached from the OT. Are we going to be above Christ? Absolutely not. Paul is there in the synagogues preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Church planning creates an opportunity for others. That was first. Two, for the opportunity for the gospel to do what the gospel does, to see people who are dead brought to life. And he starts in the church. Look at how they respond. Verse four. Here's how they respond. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Amen, ladies? But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love that, they formed a mob, come on, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Some join, some step in, some are angry, some are jealous. Some are wicked men of the rabble. They form a riot. If we're being honest, uh, Steve told me I was allowed to pastor you, so I'm going to do my best to pastor you like I would my own church. If I don't do well, history proves I won't be here for four more years, so it'll be okay. It'll be all right. If we're honest, this is still how the church responds, isn't it? Professing Christians. Some are zealous. Some are jealous. Some are angry. Man, some are just so enthralled with the gospel they can't help themselves but to respond. Some of you in the room have responded favorably. I'm a witness to that. I've experienced that personally. So thank you for your response in the gospel. But there are also many in the room that have responded not so favorably. That the good news of Jesus has just not been good news. And, And the number one plague that has hit America is not everything that culture would say it is out there in culture. Here's the number one plague in America. Christian consumerism. Whenever Christians just show up and they take and they milk and they take and they milk and instead of coming in and bearing weight, they just put people, their brothers and sisters, by the way, in a position to have to bear their weight for them. What's beautiful about church planning is that it has a way of sifting those people out. 
And here's what I mean by that. If you are a church planting church, and you're not even just per church planting, but if you're constantly sending just missionaries, local missionaries, global missionaries out, if you're a transient culture like that, someone can only sit stagnant in this seat for so long. Because people are getting sent out and people are stepping up and stepping in the new positions and people are getting sent out and the new folks are stepping up and, and leading. And there's only so long that you can sit here in this seat and us keep asking like, hey, are you ready to volunteer? Are you ready to step in? Do you want to lead this thing? Do you want to be a part of this? You can only say no for so long before the idolatry of... Beautiful way by which it just kind of sifts those folks out of... The church. I think if we're being really honest with ourselves, COVID has proven who those folks are, hasn't it? A lot of empty seats. My church too. And there's a reality where COVID sifted out the consumer. And I would, I would, I would bet my life on this. I bet you Trailhead hasn't missed a beat with them gone. Finances probably haven't changed. Volunteer stuff probably hasn't changed. Just an empty seat. Might not even be able to recall who they were, if we're being honest. Same in our church as well. COVID gave them a year off, and even if they came back as consumers, you don't feel a difference. No difference. Same with us. The problem with those individuals and what gives us grace is because we can identify in them. Here's what they're doing. We can have grace for them. What they're doing is relying on the sacrifice of their brother and sister instead of relying on the sacrifices of Jesus. And so what they do then is they rely on everyone else to bear weight for them, step into positions for them, lead for them, give for them, be generous for them, go to Arizona for them. And what they're doing is they're just relying on the sacrifice of other people to be a part of a thriving and vibrant church. And so what they do then is they rely on the sacrifice of brothers and sisters as they begin to suck the life out of them and bleed them dry. And the reason they do that is because they have not yet confessed and repented and turned to Jesus and seen his sacrifice like, our brothers and sisters are not built to handle that sort of leeching. Are you with me? Like, if you're going to consume anything in the church, consume Jesus. Like, look to the cross and see his life and look at the grave and see it empty and see the resurrection and see that he sent you and empowered you with the Holy Spirit. Boom! New life given to us as Christians. And so if you're going to consume, we consume Christ. And whenever we do that, then we turn from consumerism and we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are radically generous in my place. You are so giving and you're so faithful. You're the opposite of consumerism. You literally surrendered your kingdom, come and dwelled them out among men. The very people whom you claim to love and proclaim to love killed you, put you on a cross, and then you sent them your Holy Spirit. Come on, church. That is the opposite of consumerism. That is a gospel message that makes no sense. It's a gospel message that also breeds misfits, sends us out on mission to plant churches that plant churches. And if you're in the room and you're going to consume, consume Christ. Like repent of consumerism. See Jesus as the better. Respond to him with faith. We have a saying at Heights. It's very simple. It goes like this. You are either on mission or you are the mission. You're either on mission or you are the mission. So today's the day. Like as we said here, I know I'm not your pastor, but let me just pastor you. Today's the day. Where do you fall within that statement? Are you on mission as a missionary, as a Christian, new identity in Christ? Or are you the mission? Just be honest with yourself. It makes everything go a lot easier. Like don't 
if you know, I said this earlier too, and so I was like, maybe I'll get in trouble, maybe I won't, we'll just keep pushing. If you sit there and you know, like, I'm not going to profess faith in Jesus, I'm not going to serve on a team, I'm not going to be generous, I'm not going to give finances or, or, or people or encourage folks or pray for folks, I'm just not going to respond to the gospel. Like, if you know that that's true, then just let down, put down the charade. Like, don't, don't go to hell full of moralism. Right? Like, like, if, like if, you're gonna, if you just know, you tracking with me? Like, if you just know, this is not what I'm going to do, don't be really, really moral and then go try to kick the For, the non, for those that are sitting under the facade, under the, like, I know I'm not going to contribute to the kingdom work at all, this is heaven. Just live it up, dude. And then when you get to hell, kick the freaking door down and say, what's up? I'm home, right? I mean that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but do you get what I'm saying? Or you can repent of that and say, man, consumerism is sucking the life out of my family because the way you lead in the church is a reflection of how you lead in your family, by the way. I'm just dragging my wife, my husband through the dirt. I have too high of expectations for my children. I'm not satisfied with my work no matter the promotion, no matter the amount of money. It's literally just eating you alive. Right? Moralism will never get you into the kingdom of heaven. Consumerism might keep you dead. Maybe that should have been the big idea. Repent of that, man. Pursue the cross. Consume Christ. Consumerism alone, listen, will get you consumed. Consumerism, when left unrepentant, destroys cities. Like, no one wanted me to go to Collinsville. Whenever I told folks that I was going to go to Collinsville, I had uh, the majority of Christians were the ones that pushed back. It wasn't non-Christians. Whenever you all sent me out, you sent me about 14 people from Trailhead. I had about 30 other people that would be a part of that launch team. Ten of them were non-Christians. Getting non-Christians to come with me was no big deal. Getting Christians to come was really, really difficult. And what Christians would say in their consumerism, they would say, you don't want to go to Collinsville, man. There's no, um, there's no jobs there. The real estate there sucks. The school district sucks. And while they're talking to me, it's like fueling my fire in me. And I'm like, that's exactly why we should go. Like, what has happened to the church? Like, of course, job. yeah, Collinsville sucks. Can I say that? Look, no one from Edwardsville goes to Collinsville, Right? Even that, I had folks within Trailhead Church that were like, hey, you know, Pastor Steve, he's only eight miles away. That's a threat. I'm like, no one wants to go to Collinsville. Come on. You have everything you need here. Goshen Coffee, that's really all you need, right? They would say, you know, you don't want to go there. You don't want to do this. I mean, just the whole time, I can totally identify with Paul whenever Paul says, this Jesus whom I proclaim is the Christ. Like, someone has to take the gospel to experience a new opportunity to be birthed, to see new life. In this case, it was me going to Collinsville. Uh, Steve pastored me through that. He, he said this. This might be a good word for you today as well. Steve said, God does not call you first to a people, but to a person, and that person is Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, the church will just come up around you. It's like, it doesn't matter where you go, dude. Don't go to Collinsville. Don't go to Collinsville. You know, go where you feel led, go where you feel called, but at the end of the day, if you follow Jesus, (laughs) the great and honorable Steve Mizell, if you follow Jesus, the church will just birth around you. That's exactly what happened. Just follow after the Lord. The rest will work itself out. Church planning is a conduit by which the gospel 
is given another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity. Sometimes on a Sunday, sometimes at a city event for city leaders to hear the gospel. It goes both ways. Last point I have for you then is this. Church planning creates new opportunities to turn the world on its head. Verse 9 says this. And when they could not find them, that's their band of misfits, that new launch team, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, look at this, these men who have turned the world upside down. Man, what if Trailhead could be known for that? What if Heights could be known with that, by that? These men, these women who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, as they should. That king is Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the reality is this, man. Church planting provides an opportunity for God's people in concert with God's message, the gospel, to straight turn the world upside down. That's what we get to do, man. We get to reveal and show this, what what I would call like this paradox of the kingdom, where God has called people that the world or the culture might look at and say, man, that person is going to make nothing of themselves. And there's this message over here that's ludicrous. How can the very God who come and put on flesh allow the very people he These people and this message are going to bring change. And without fail, it happens. Every time, and the world is literally flipped upside down because it's a, it's a paradoxical gospel that we believe. And so all glory goes to the Father. Only he could write a narrative like that. Only he could put a system in place that says, you need to go, and you need to go, and you need to go. Now, not everyone's called to church planting, but you better believe every single Christian is called to be a missionary. Everywhere we eat, everywhere we work, everywhere we play, everywhere we sleep, everywhere. Called to live on mission in the everyday stuff of life. Go make disciples of the ethne, the nations. That was a command given to the church, not just to planters, but to everyone. And so there's this beautiful reality where we get to go out and get to start churches that start more churches. And so what's cool about that is this. Whenever, the way I see it is this. Whenever I or we at Heights get to experience wins, dude, Trailhead is right there with me. Whether you guys keep tabs on Facebook or not, it does not matter. In the spirit, as the global church, you're celebrating with us. And so, dude, in the last year of our lives, the year and a half, I suppose, COVID has been asinine. It sucked. Am I allowed to say sucked here? I've said it three times now. Okay, yeah. I'm from Collinsville. I got a lot of that in me now, you know? So it's been hard, church. Disheartening, hard, frustrating. But man, you better believe the unstoppable mission of God has prevailed. Like in the last year, in the midst of COVID, I'm sharing these things because Steve asked me to share. Not, that's it. Dude, in the last year, we've had 38 people that we know of for sure come to faith and be baptized. We're about to have, we're going to hit 50 by the end of this year. Like people have already professed faith, we just haven't been able to dunk them. Our space is very small. No room, we ran out of room to dunk people. That's something you want to celebrate, Right? In the last year and a half as a young church plant, we're just seven years, we didn't miss one financial obligation we had with any of the nonprofits. Right? We didn't take, not that I'm not opposed to this, but as we prayed, we didn't take any money from the government to help with our finances as a church. I'm not opposed to anyone doing that. We just, spirit gives different convictions to different people, right? We didn't take any money. We didn't miss a beat. Finances increased, nothing decreased. Consumers got sifted out. 
we're building a school in Kenya in the midst of all this. Didn't miss a beat. We just built fifth grade in Kenya. So we put in a well, and then we put in a mango field, and then we built a school, and then we have a system set up where you can sponsor the kids that go to that school. So kind of like compassion, but we just kind of did it on our own through someone else and created this whole ecosystem there so they can sell mangoes and, and use their water and bring money into their village instead of having to ask for money in their village. And so like in the midst of that, here's what's crazy about that. In the Bible, if you read about the church of Ephesus, the socioeconomic status of their village changed. I remember reading that, and I was like, man, that's incredible. Like, what if we could do that? And then we did it, because the socioeconomic status of this village went from impoverished to middle class. And so it's incredible, right? Like, so God is doing those things. His mission does not stop. No one can come against the unstoppable mission of God. In the midst of that, we were about to plant a church in Pontoon Beach, uh, we're in the process of praying. We have a resident coming to plant a Spanish-speaking church in Fairmont City, two places no one wants to go. Everzo don't go to Collinsville. You definitely don't go to Pontoon or Fairmont City, and you're missing out on in- incredible, authentic tacos, by the way, in Fairmont City. A Spanish-speaking church. We've been praying for Fairmont City for seven years. The dude that's coming is 100% bilingual. He translates for the Southern Baptist Convention. He perfectly speaks English. He perfectly speaks Spanish and understands both cultures. Five years we've been praying for this dude, and he's finally coming. We're trying to buy him a house. (laughs) Think about that. Buy him a whole house. Set in that for just a minute, okay? Because we want him to be able to come and not to worry about finances. The church. But we're praying like, faithfully that God would allow us to plant a church in O'Fallon to be able to pastor and shepherd veterans so every three years when they PCS in and out, we can just launch them out like arrows into the world as missionaries because we want to see the world flipped upside down on its head. Dude, we've, I can talk about this forever. I can share story after story after story, not just the story of the family I shared earlier. That's one family out of 13 missional communities that have about 20 families in each one of them. We left here with 40. God has allowed us to multiply by tenfold in the last seven years. And it's just been incredible. I mean, we gave away $100,000, I think, during COVID to, to pay people's bills in our church, to pay people's bills that don't even go to our church. And so COVID was hard. And at the same time, ooh, don't get in trouble. COVID did not catch Jesus by surprise. He's sovereign even over that, right? So I share all that. One, because I was asked to. Two, because I'm thankful for what the Lord has provided. And secondly, you're a part of that. So like whether you get to see that or not, you know, you can check out Facebook, you can look at us along the way, you can call or text or whatever. But whenever we experience victory and see in, Coll- in Collinsville, you experience victory as well. And what's beautiful about that, I'm going to say this again, I said it a moment ago and then I'll be done. Generosity is not just a series that Trailhead does. Like generosity was ingrained in me in the year that I was here. I was only here a year, church. I literally think about Trailhead and being here without exaggerating, every week of my life. There's not a week that goes by that I'm like, dang, I kind of miss that place, right? It's like where I learned how to be a man. I learned how to love my wife. I learned how to shepherd and pastor my kiddos. I learned the gospel. Steve took that toolbox I had and didn't know how to work on that car, man, and he forged in me something incredible. Taught me how to be a a mechanic, not with cars. I suck at cars, but with the gospel. And God has just been doing incredible things ever since. So thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for allowing me to come. For your elders, thank you for giving me the opportunity to preach. Let me pray over you, and I'm going to get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this church. Love this church. Thankful for it. Thankful for her, I should say. God, you're more gracious to us than we deserve. 
as our sin abounds and consumerism, Lord, your mercy abounds all the more. I pray for the church. I pray for those that are sitting here and they just know, like they know, above all else, they're not going to respond. God, I pray that right now that you would take their hardened hearts, hearts of stone and just shatter them. Give them a fleshly desire for the college student, for the husband, for the wife, for the single. Lord, just show them how beautiful and incredible you are as the Christ. God, help us to continue forging forward. Help us to turn this world upside down, literally. And we pray all this in the sweet name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.